Hey everybody, and we're back here at EarthX, and I have a very special guest, Amber Jackson Sparks. I was just downstairs at the 30, the 30 under 30. These are the cream of the crop youngsters, and uh, we they were doing a uh, panel. What was the name of the panel, Amber? We were on a panel for environmental activism. Environmental activism. Very interesting to see mm -hmm. uh, young people up here on the stage uh, talking about uh, all matter of politics and how uh, to get involved and not lose hope. There's a lot of like, hey, you can manage the stress of, of uh, getting, we can get through this together. Mm -hmm. We're all on the same team. It, it was good stuff. Uh, and of course, I'm a millennial. Uh, you're a millennial, obviously, I, I would assume. Is that right? If I had to check a box. But you don't identify. You don't. You choose not to self-identify <laughs> as a millennial. It's totally fine. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about your organization here that I understand you co-founded, the Blue Latitudes. Tell me about mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. So I'm a marine scientist by training and kind of an entrepreneur on accident. I started a company called Blue Latitudes with my co-founder, Emily Hazelwood. We were right out of graduate school and we were really interested. We had just spent our entire thesis researching how to repurpose offshore oil and gas platforms into artificial reefs. And we were really interested in California, where we have 27 offshore oil and gas platforms. And none of them have become reefs, but they or have been permanently made into reefs. But below the surface, every beam and crossbeam of these massive structures are just a fabulous thriving reef and some scientists have proven them to be some of the most productive ecosystems on the planet which is a big statement for something that's on offshore oil and gas so we saw this really unique opportunity to reuse that structure as something that could benefit the environment and we started blue latitudes to be a marine environmental consulting firm that would cross boundary lines that you often don't see where you have environmentalists working with oil and gas to help them repurpose these structures into reefs, not only in California, but around the world. You know, this is interesting to me because here in Texas, um, of course, there's the Gulf Coast. Ton in fact, you, you mentioned this on your on the panel, but uh, there is uh, lots and lots and lots of drilling and um, there here in Texas, there is a, a rigs to reefs program that is mm -hmm. fairly prolific, um, and uh, it's, it turns out to be a win-win for the oil and gas company because it's it ends up oftentimes being quite costly to remove an old uh, rig system, and um, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department will come in and say, "Hey, we can turn this into a into habitat just by letting it be there. Now they, like you said, they do cap the well and they, there are some environmental, uh, there's a checklist that you got to go through to do that. But mm -hmm. tell me about, and so that's the Gulf and I know it works here. It's a f popular program. California is a little different though. I mean, oil and gas, you have, California used to be a major oil and gas producer. Uh, we fueled the entire Pacific fleet of, uh, ships, uh, with oil from Ventura County, uh, where I'm from. Uh, and there are still to this day, there's uh, oil uh, rigs offshore. You mentioned them out there in the channel. But tell me about how uh, the, the, there was the major oil spill in Santa Barbara, of course. Uh, public opinion turned. Um, what, what is it like working with the oil and gas industry in California on converting these, these structures out there? And I should also mention that these are uh, extremely substantial structures. Uh, 
Many, some of the deepest. Some of the deep, yeah. Like the ones in the Gulf are oftentimes like jack-up rigs. They're 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 quick to they bang them up real quick. These are these are massive and deep. I mean, tell me, let's go and do a little bit of the let's do a deep dive on these things. Okay, I can do that. Yeah, we look to the Gulf kind of as the shining star for the Riggs Reef program because they've seen so much success over the past 30 years. They've reefed over 500 platforms and they've turned into really successful ecosystems for marine life. And the Gulf is different from California because in the Gulf, there's tons of offshore oil and gas. A lot of major oil and gas companies are headquartered here in Texas, some in Louisiana. And that means that there's a lot of jobs tied to these companies and people people have a different opinion they they like offshore oil and gas they like these companies and the cherry on top is that they're incredible fishing opportunities so recreational fishermen in the gulf are out there every weekend with grandfathers dads their sons daughters they're all out there fishing and and having a great time and they often head to the oil platforms because they know that that's where the marine life will truly be thriving and that mentality that recreational and um, economic tide oil and gas is just not the same in california we only have 27 platforms so there's not a lot of tie not a lot of jobs associated with them and recreational fishermen are not even allowed in the vicinity of these platforms so there's and there's just not as many people who are involved or really aware of the value of these structures and they're quite far out uh i mean they're, they're not easy to access that's for sure they're not easy to access and i've had there are a few that you can actually go and dive on recreationally but if you're not an extreme diver and you're not you have no reason to go offshore and go explore these ecosystems and you know what, from your beach chair, they just look like massive blemishes on the horizon. And in California, we want our horizon to be spotless. And we don't want any reminder of our dependency on fossil fuels or the devastation from the 1969 oil spill. So Californians have a very different perspective. They'd like to see these structures completely removed. Talk. Let's talk a little bit about um, how the state how you work with uh, your organization with the state of California to, I guess, try to, I mean, in your opinion, I think this is fair to say that you believe that the best use, the highest and best use of these things is to reef them. Is that right? Not every platform is a good candidate to be reefed. There are some things that need to be looked at and sort of qualified. And that's where we really get to work with the state is to determine, to determine what it is that the state needs and make sure that we're creating an, an ecosystem that aligns with their goals. So you have the state, you have the oil companies, of course, you got to get on board. And then you have other stakeholders like fishermen who you need to make sure that you align with them. In, in California, trawl fisher, fishing used to be a really big deal, and the trawl fishermen tend not to agree with the Riggs Reef Program because it leaves an obstruction in the way of their fishing practices. Trawl fishing, for those of you who don't know, is like taking a bulldozer the size of a football field and just dragging it along the ocean floor, picking up everything in its path. So if you have an oil platform in the way, that's going to hinder where and It's a major obstacle to your bulldozer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious about the... Um I'm curious about the uh, situation there. A story we're following is the kelp uh, die-off and, um, you know, the starfish wasting uh, 
issue. And um, I'm wondering if with habitat loss, like we were seeing, I think I was out in San Francisco for the International Ocean Film Festival and uh, saw a great student film actually uh, uh, that was made by a, a kid up in the Bay Area, high school kid. Uh, and it, it was all about these, these purple uh, uh, urchins and how they're just decimating the, the kelp forests. But with that, with this in mind, I, I think, and I want to say they said 80% loss of the kelp forests. Mm-hmm. Not, I, I can't say that that's accurate, but I remember just being blown away. As a kid in California, you would look out at the sea and you would see these kelp forests just kind of splotched like a uh, like lily pads in, in the Monet painting, you know? <laughs> and um, to think that that's just dramatically changed does that change from the from a scientist scientist perspective are we going to be aggregating fish around these structures is this a i know that there's no replacing the kelp but i mean how does this fit into to the situation well that's a great question because i wish we still lived in the environment where there was no offshore industry there was no development, no degradation of our natural resources by runoff, pollution, overfishing that can cause nearshore reefs or nearshore habitats like incredible kelp forests in California to die off. But we're, unfortunately, this is this is our reality. But there are areas of hope, silver linings, and we really see the ability to repurpose offshore platforms as reefs as as a, that silver lining, a way to mitigate for some of and mitigate and compensate for some of our nearshore habitat loss. And these structures are already thriving massive reefs. And throughout California to to mitigate for those natural reefs that are dying, we're sinking ships in Shipwreck Alley and, and down in San Diego. We're building artificial reefs using rubble and cement off Palos Verdes and San Onofre. So you have these millions and millions of dollars that are being poured into the development of artificial reefs when you have thriving artificial reefs that already exist. And they've been ecosystems thriving for nearly 30 years now. So what we're really looking to do is to repurpose those structures effectively into the reef ecosystems that we know can can survive and really provide a, a home for fish offshore. Let's talk a little bit about the risk uh, calculation of, uh, say, removing the structure. I, obviously, it would be costly to do that. Um, and ultimately, it would need to be disposed of somewhere. Uh, I guess you could, if it's steel, perhaps you could be, it could be uh, recycled. Um, although, who knows what condition it would be in after uh, being a reef for decades. But uh, are there risks associated with removing uh, big rigs like this? Yeah, so in California, we have some of the deepest structures. They're massive. Some of them go down to 1,800 feet. And so that's like three times the size of the Empire State Building. These just massive scaffolding structures that have been supporting the drilling infrastructure for years and years. So over that time, they've amassed all this marine life on the beams and cross beams. And they have decommissioned some platforms in the past in California. And when they did pull them up out of the water and bring them into Long Beach Port, it smelled to high heaven because it's just all the rotting scallops and mussels and anemones on the platform. And 
the city threw a huge fit. All the locals were really upset, and so nobody wants a stinky, nobody wants that rotten thing in their, you know, the yeah. port. And California actually doesn't have the facilities to properly recycle something of that size. So what they did, and what they're going to have to do with any future decommissioned platform that comes out, is they will cut up the structure into pieces and send it across the Pacific to be dismantled in Asia. And the issue with that is that these massive barges that are carrying this metal across the Pacific, the second they go outside of state waters, they switch from diesel to bunker fuel. Bunker fuel. And bunker fuel makes diesel look like champagne. It just has the most intense carbon footprint associated with it. So there is a big risk, a big price to pay on the environment when you remove these, especially when you consider how much marine life you are losing by taking them out. So that's why we're really here and that's why we are advocating that there could be a better solution. That's very interesting. Tell me, uh, tell me, we, we started talking about kind of California, but let's talk a little bit about policy and which policies you want to see changed or amended to kind of help you and your, your organization's vision of utilizing these for habitat. Yeah. So back in 2010, former Governor Schwarzenegger signed Assembly Bill 2503. That's the Riggs Reef Law in California. But there were some issues. Number one being the liability for that structure does not get designated to the state. And that is the golden rule here in the Gulf. The state, the Texas state, Louisiana state will take on liability for that structure, not for the well. So the well is the liability of the oil company in perpetuity. So if there's ever a spill or anything like that, it's always the oil company's responsibility to come back and clean it up. So in California, we need to make some modifications to our bill to designate that liability to the state because the state isn't just getting the, the liability of, of the, the structure. Of the structure, that's right. Because the state isn't just getting the structure, they're also getting a huge chunk of change. I think it's about 60% of any cost savings realized by the oil company has to go back to the state. Oh, really? And to an endowment for marine preservation and conservation that funds offshore reefs and the Department of Fish and Wildlife and yeah. researching. Research. Yeah, yeah, all throughout California. It's very so interesting. Do those, they do that in, in the Gulf as well? They Texas? do. Okay. In the Gulf, it's split 50-50 or they can come to a donation agreement. But in California, it's a little bit more. Very interesting. And uh, let's talk, I mean, the liability of the structures, I'm I'm assuming we're talking about uh, a net gets stuck on it or something, or mm-hmm. like a boat runs in. What, what, let's talk a little bit about what these, what liability we're talking about. Yeah. After all, it's, it's, most of this is submerged if it were to it's really the liability of if a fisherman gets his net stuck or if a diver dies right. while diving on that Somebody's structure. Somebody's climbing on it or something. Yeah. yeah. Which would not be a good idea. No. But I could see, you know, I could see the temptation. I've, mm-hmm. uh, if you ever have a chance to go out to the Channel Islands National Park, on your way out, you pass a few of these things. Uh, and they're all there like at, on the continental shelf. It's fascinating. They're all kind of in, right. In you can line. tell that they know exactly where that geologic places where they mm-hmm. got to put them and uh they're i mean these are you know people lived on these things these were big structures mm, movie theaters they have industry sized kitchens industrial sized kitchens yeah. they're they're big structures yeah they're they're little you know compounds to yeah. to house the the drill the the oil workers and everybody on there and uh 
uh, I could see the temptation to want to climb up. Mm-hmm. No, let, 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 but they would remove all that. Okay, so that's so, just, yeah. yeah. Let's so, talk about the visual because you're talking about the unmarred yeah. thing. So like now, they're oftentimes have that like f- flame burning mm-hmm. the 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 excess gas. They're burning that so you really see it especially at night you can really see these things right um but what would be the process to rem- you, you top them off is that what goes on yeah so through the rigs reef program if it were to be if one of these platforms were to be decommissioned as a reef first thing they would do is they'd seal and cap the well and remove any drilling rig or rigging structure and so that well is capped and no longer accessible. Then they would remove the top side, so the side that you can see from your beach chair, and they'd usually cut it, the structure down to about 80 feet below the sea surface. Oh, really? And this allows for ships to safely draft over and prevent any sort of incident. In some cases, they'll make that a little shallower, maybe cut it down to 40 feet and put a buoy marker or something like that on it, but typically 80 feet. And that would be for like a diving site to make it a little bit more accessible for recreational opportunity, I, I assume. Yes. Now, have you, do you fish? Do you go out and have you like fished these things or I dived them? I've fished them in, a, in an interesting way. I've, I've, I've dove on many of our platforms and I've collected scallops off the legs of these Ooh, platforms. Cool. Yeah, but you just use kind of like a butter knife and you, you hit them and it, you hit the shell and it opens up and you can get your knife in there and scoop out a scallop. These are massive scallops, like the size. Oh my gosh. Like of a baseball. They're huge. They're huge. I mean, you're used to seeing little scallops the size of a quarter or something like that. And they're massive and you can eat them underwater. And that's what we do. Oh my God. Or bring them up onto the boat and make ceviche. That's like the best thing I think I've heard all day. It's pretty good. An underwater scallop fresh off the, fresh off the, I think that's how you convince Californians, you know, they love their seafood. (laughs) Well, actually the majority of, of scallops and mussels farmed in in California, I think it's like 90% of them, get their brood stock from the oil platforms. Really? Yeah. So we, I've actually been out with those aquaculturists who, aquaculture farmers, mm-hmm. they go offshore and they collect their brood, brood stock and they take them into the lab and they start propagating these the species because they are some of the purists. They're in a blue water setting. So they're far away from all of the nearshore runoff that a typical scallop or mussel would be filter feeding and you know, compromise the value of that meat. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about what the future holds. What's what's your organization, Blue Latitudes? What are you uh, going to be doing over the next year or so uh, to advance this? And I'm sure you're pushing this into other places where you have rigs. Is that? Yeah. So we've, as far as California goes, just to close that loop, especially in regards to the political aspects and trying to change these laws. We've partnered with Patagonia, and we have a petition online. You can Google Blue Latitudes Patagonia Action Works or go to our website, rigtoreefexploration.org, and you can sign our petition that lets our Congress know that this is something we want to see. It's an it's a solution and an opportunity that we want to make accessible here in California. And these are the changes that need to happen. We're really just advocating for that liability that it be designated to California. It seems like a sensible uh, flip. It is, and we're not asking anything. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I mean, this has been working for, like I said, over thirty years in the Gulf, in multiple states, Mississippi. 
Louisiana and Texas. So we're just looking at what's been successful there. If the government of Texas and Louisiana can do this, the government of California, I'm sure would be, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the root governing philosophies of these states are uh, quite different oftentimes. And I think this is an example of where California could uh, maybe learn something from Texas. I, I hope so. So that's, we're really pushing through with that petition to work with our legislators to get that bill revised. And then on an international scale, we work to bring rigs to reef and this idea of repurposing structures as reefs uh, to communities around the world. We've worked in Africa, Malaysia, Thailand. We do a lot of work in the Gulf in the deep sea. That's another industry that's growing and there's a lot of research and sort of base light. There's a baseline understanding that we're hoping to to capture well we just sold off uh all of that those oil leases were just opened up even in the deep deep water Mm -hmm. so i would expect a lot more uh drilling uh activity in the gulf of mexico in the coming years and of course these structures last a long time right and we so we don't advocate for new drilling or anything like that we're really just trying to solve the problem of what do you do at the end of their life, the end of their economic life. And those are some questions that have never really been asked. And especially when it comes to the deep water, because we just don't really know. We don't have a lot of information about what kind of impacts we have on deep ocean environments when we drill or when we decommission. So, So we're really hoping to gather the environmental data necessary to answer some of those questions. And we're working on that right now. Very cool. Uh, Amber... Jackson Sparks, uh, the founder, co-founder of Blue Latitudes here at EarthX Ocean. Uh, Amber, do you have any uh, closing remarks you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, Closing remarks. Stay curious. Stay curious. Always good. Uh, And and your website one more time for our listeners. Rig to Reef. And is that a numeral number two? two, Number two. Rig to Reef Exploration. Org. Where you can also find us on social media, Rig Tarif Explorers, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you very much, Amber. Thank you. Winds gonna blow to Amber.